I'm Robin Mallory Pratt, and this is Transforming Luxury, a new podcast series from the business of fashion in which we're investigating how market disruption, new technology, and growing consumer scrutiny are driving transformative change in the $300 billion luxury goods market over a special six-episode series presented by Klarna. From buy now to swipe up, unboxing to bounce houses, KOLs, KOCs, shoppable video, live streaming, digital clienteling, resale sites, marketplaces, macro and micro influencers. With major new platforms emerging all over the world, the retail networks now utilized by luxury brands are evolving at an unprecedented pace to include a huge number of customer touch points, each a distinct opportunity for growth, but requiring an idiosyncratic strategy for success. Due to mobile commerce and social commerce, when, how, and why a consumer transacts with a brand has been reimagined entirely. The linear paths to purchase we are also familiar with are being replaced by new conduits that combine digital content and customer-centric retail strategies that make transacting as engaging, enjoyable, and instantaneous as possible. There is one region responsible for the lion's share of this retail innovation, China. The engine of the luxury industry's growth for decades now, it is the epicenter of the most significant retail innovation in the market. And now, that innovation is beginning to shape global retail strategies. Over 52% of China's sales will take place online in 2021, up from almost 45% in 2020. Other economies, even those with sophisticated digital landscapes, lag behind. In South Korea, the country with the next highest rate of e-commerce against overall sales, just under 30% of transactions are predicted to take place online this year. The US is expected to see just 15%. E-marketer pegged the average among Western European economies at around 13%. Indeed, it's important when we use the term e-commerce to reject the Western-centric lens of the European and United States markets. With desktop computing, thanks to its mobile-first consumer cohorts and differing cultural attitudes towards data sharing, China's digital ecosystem is more connected, more personal, and more developed than the West. To understand how users experience China's e-commerce ecosystem, I spoke to Iris Chan from the Digital Luxury Group. We began our conversation by discussing the rapid change she had experienced in Shanghai over the past decade. Landing in China uh, 10 years ago was really quite an interesting experience for me, especially since I am Chinese background. My family is from Shanghai and Guangzhou, and coming back to exactly where my mother grew up was quite interesting to then see and also bring her there to see it for the first time in 40 years and see how different it is, but also meeting my family there and also having that whole experience and juxtaposition between what has happened and developed as a futuristic kind of city while at the same time living in a lane house, you know, with uh, a lot of local families and being able to see local life in a, in a different lens. So thinking about how that digital transformation has happened over the last 10 years, especially starting in the market when you know, at the time WeChat was barely really on the ground and now it's literally everything we use. Um, with the mix of luxury, digital transformation, and then Chinese consumers and that whole trifecta coming together has been really interesting 
just to see how fast brands have adopted, how consumers have adopted and evolved in ways that you probably wouldn't have seen in other markets. And now we're seeing, as we've discussed, coming back the other way. So things happening in China that are now being adopted and looking into the future of potentially what happens in the West, but obviously will end up being quite different. What were the key stages in the evolution of how brands engage and convert consumers in the Chinese market? And how has that already shaped some elements of global shopping behavior? A lot of people in China didn't end up having a landline. You know, they went straight to a mobile phone. That's a very different, distinct experience from everything I'd say most of us grew up with and for for generations and continue in the West. And not having that, you have the mobile connection first. So then the infrastructure of the country around that enabled for penetration of internet to be really quite high. So you have almost a billion people who are primarily accessing the internet via mobile devices. And fast forward to now today, like this is just sort of what they have grown up with. And we're not just talking about younger generations that you compare to. That's why when you look at a lot of studies, it says, you know, the counterpart of your consumer in China is actually a lot younger. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that the older generations aren't using the internet just as much. Uh, You know, lower tier cities, top tier cities, they're all using that and they're all using it via mobile. So I think that entire shift being the way that it was and developing really fast to not have these like physical landlines going everywhere, that mobile phones and internet penetration doing it that way. And so if you think about that, that's what makes digital payments, live streaming, all of these types of trends that have happened in the past several years happen at scale in China. So that's not where it's a slow rollout of infrastructure needing to be built in the country in order for people to have access to these things. Having that handheld right at your hands at all times, at your fingertips, it makes a huge difference in terms of just like how you start to develop behavior and what you adopt and how quickly you adopt it. So everyone's really used to being digitally savvy and like digital payments. I mean, I have great aunts and uncles who are in their 80s and pay for things using their WeChat pay or their Alibaba pay. So like it's normal for them. And I would say digital landscape itself, as a result of all these sort of foundational elements that kind of gave way to it, there are a lot of different apps. There are a lot of different platforms I mean, yes, there's a handful that even more than a handful compared to the West that we talk about regularly, whether it be Douyin, uh, Weibo, WeChat, Tmall, uh, Billy Billy, any of these, you know, there's still so many more beyond that. And a lot of it is interconnected, cross-platform interconnections and redirections. So consumers can have a very unique experience that brands can then take them on different types of journeys. And then just from a overall macro level, the whole idea of data and privacy is also taken at a different way because of, of course, I think this just behavior of being on digital platforms and understanding that that is where they spend a lot of their time and where they are accessing a lot of things that the also the notion of having that privacy and not giving the data away is not seen the same way as it is in the West. How significant are differing cultural attitudes towards the sharing of data 
if it means that sharing where your location is enables a brand to better service you or customize your experience or make your homepage more customized to your geography, then they're, they're more willing. And so as a result, there's a little bit of give and take there because if they're more willing and the platforms enable that, there's also on the flip side, the brands are able to use that data as well to then actually implement things that enable that uh, personalized, customized experience. And I think that's important, especially since a lot of China is, you know, it's not accessible physically from a luxury brand standpoint. It's a massive undertaking to start opening up stores everywhere. Uh, So, you know, things like digital uh, enables for accessibility for consumers, but at the same time for brands to have that reach. If you think about a group of users that are mobile first, that are comfortable in an ecosystem which is more complex and broader than that which we're used to in the West, what are the kind of advantages that that gives luxury brands? You mentioned that they have the opportunity to create more compelling experiences, but I'm also assuming that there is the opportunity to innovate the path to purchase in ways that are adopted faster. That's a good question. I mean, I let's say, for instance, in the hard luxury goods sector, when we saw COVID hit, you saw really early on in 2020, a lot of hard luxury goods jump onto Tmall and, you know, start selling Cartier, Vachon Constantin, watch brands, jewelries, things that wouldn't normally be on what was previously thought as Tmall in luxury pavilion and all of that space being a place that isn't necessarily fit for luxury brands, fit for luxury experiences. And when they're able to do that and jump on there quite quickly, quite smoothly, I I do believe some brands felt more confident about doing that because the platforms had these capabilities and that these this the space that enabled for brands to actually be able to represent themselves in a way that fit their brand's positioning and what they wanted their customers to actually experience. And since then, you know, you have second floor on there, which is additional content experience for brands on Tmall. So it's like a tab that you can just drop down and there's more branded content, video, rich media and everything. So it really has evolved even what a brand might even do on their own.com. You know, they could do even more than than that and also update it in a more agile way, too. So as different milestones following the Chinese very busy calendar every year, you know, they can update it for Goddess Day or Queen's Day or International Women's Day, number of different names for it, to 520, to then 618, to then Qixi, then to mid-autumn, then to 1111, and whatever other milestones that they want in between. So I think that they are, brands do have to adapt, but they're, on the flip side, they're also facilitated by the platforms. And as a result, you know, even with the, the consumers, they're also part of that whole ecosystem, enabling those behaviors that do fit the the needs that they're looking for. So I think brands didn't necessarily have to apply those things in the West. It is also a result of the fact that the platforms don't really have that capability integrated at the same time. Consumers are also not as quick to adopt. So it, it does require like all those pieces to come together in order for it to flow. But that's where China has that. And and that's where I think a lot of brands are doing things that they wouldn't necessarily have thought they would be doing 
five years ago even, or even yesterday sometimes, or even thinking about doing for tomorrow, but they are. Could you tell me a little bit about how some of the brands are using new forms of technology, be it live streaming, in-app shopping, anything to better engage the consumer in China? Live streams can be done in a variety of formats. Initially, I think the idea was just, okay, go with like the most entertaining, the greatest exposure. That's why you have a lot of those KOL-led live streams that have done massive numbers, both in terms of just how long they go for, how many people are viewing them, how many products they sell. At the same time, brands also have now gotten the level of experience to realize that there's also less brand control because it is KOL-led. There is a higher return rate because it's a bit more impulse buying when you're it's it's in that that moment or that offer in that limited time and and that is the mechanism for it but I think brands have kind of learned that there are other ways to also be doing live streams. It's it's not just KOL dependent, for instance, that they can be doing their own brand led ones. And that's where, you know, private traffic, private communities have really developed and experimenting where, you know, they even have some of their sales associates, which I'm not, I wouldn't even necessarily call them sales associates anymore, uh, that they are their own content creators or community managers that can bring these experiences, whether they be in store or in a showroom, and bring them online to a very targeted audience where they actually are experiencing higher conversions than they might on, say, the larger exposure KOL-led live streams. Can you tell me some of the new ways in which brands and KOLs are connecting to consumers using novel forms of communication? Content creation is taking a different format. We've been talking about this a lot with a, a number of our clients as well, is that, you know, because there's so much going on in China all the time, there is a level of need for content that is going to address the market in a more nuanced way or just even really looking at it in a more relevant lens. And that's where these types of social commerce, mobile commerce, live streaming is also, you know, really informative for them. That feedback loop because of the data that can be captured and the behavioral data, not necessarily transactional alone, can enable for a brand to then look at that data and say, okay, what are we trying to say? Like, what are we trying to do here? And what are we trying to provide with these types of products? Is it the right one? What should we evolve? What should we change? What should we develop as new? You know, And for a lot of brands, going to the dot-com isn't something that is inherently normal for them to do, right? So like, they're not going to the dot-com, exploring your collection, looking at your lookbooks and, and things like that. They're they're going to Tmall or they're getting a message from your WeChat account with the latest information or following your Wapewall or, or looking at trends and tags on little red books. So they're gathering information from all different sources, but it's not likely the .com. So as a brand or the .cn for that matter, for a brand, you know, you have to kind of be able to disseminate this content in different places. And as a result of the types of platforms and how they format their content, you're not doing the same kind of content on Little Red Book as you might on WeChat. And definitely not the same on WeChat as you would on Weibo, just because of the format, the way the digestibility of that content and what people look for when they're on there and the, just the overall behavior. So 
and this is me probably generalizing, but again, thinking from a consumer behavior or people's behavior standpoint, I think it all does have a lot to do with the fact that consumers don't get the chance necessarily in China to go into a store. Iris's insight that the physical scale of China and, as a result, the distance between consumers and luxury retail outposts located in first, second or even third tier cities has actually influenced digital consumer behaviour is an important one. Having saturated major cities and touristic flows, as luxury seeks new customers to drive the growth expected by shareholders, effectively tapping into more remote populations via digital touchpoints is a focus for a number of major luxury players. Jerry Claude, the founder of The Solution, a consumer insights business that collects data through extensive interviews with hundreds of Chinese consumers, believes that the fact that the first introduction between a luxury brand and many consumers is digital is creating a significant opportunity for smaller brands. There is a big opportunity for small or medium-sized luxury brands to essentially leapfrog this luxury hierarchy. Now, the key thing is with all of these digital tools and platforms available to brands, there is a possibility of creating a deeply uh, differentiated, relevant and compelling digital story leveraging different types of digital touch points and in China due to uh, the development of the uh, digital space it is possible to create a first impression which is just as compelling as a traditional retail flagship and because most Chinese consumers that is the first impression they will have of your brand then it makes sense to invest in this first in a way that you perhaps invest in physical retail in other markets. One element that is particularly distinct about the Chinese e-commerce ecosystem is the amount of peer-to-peer influence over purchases. Could you tell me why that is? I think the first point is that luxury consumption or premium consumption in China is always overtly social. So say when I talk to a 21-year-old in Shanghai, they will talk about the joy that they gained from purchasing something. But the greater amount of joy is actually from sharing that with their immediate peer group and hoping that they will then buy the same brand so they sort of form a social community. Also, part of the answer is generational. Now, probably unlike anywhere else in the world, we can understand China in terms of five-year cohorts. So it's almost sub-generations. And each sub-generation is arguably being judged by those older than them, even five years older than them. And they want a level of assurance around the type of brands that are going to define their sub-generation. So part of the process of looking at influencers pro-consumers is actually to understand almost the visual identity of that particular sub-generation. So it's not actually passive behavior, it's actually proactive in terms of creating that sense of identity and community for that particular group, whether they be post-00s, post-95s. I think one of the most important things is to 
understand the different roles that different digital platforms play and not to think that a young Chinese luxury consumer makes a decision about a brand in 10 seconds, you know, from something they've seen on one platform. This is going to be part of a wider process where they might see a live stream to understand a new collection or to understand uh, what a new designer is doing uh, within the luxury house. Another part of it may be very driven by a, a new product. So it might be a direct call to action in terms of an e-commerce uh, strategy. Another form might be through a prominent uh, fashion or luxury uh, influencer in China. So to me, one of the most important things is to be able to tell a consistent story or present a consistent vision I mentioned that luxury consumption in China is always inherently social. So to have a relationship with a brand means knowing it to a level where I could confidently introduce it to my friends and to my wider uh, group of contacts. So to get to that threshold, it's not about one very cool activation on one platform. It's about this continual conversation that you're having with these young people in China. Now, a note from our partner, the CEO of Klarna, Sebastian Simiotkowski, who shares his insights generated by the payment company's 90 million active customers. The product and brands are more and more capable of selling themselves directly. You know, shipping and payments and all these things are getting standardized to the level where it's simple to offer across the globe. The, the curation area has been much more unclear. Like, are people looking at Cosmopolitan magazine? Are they re reading this influencer? Are they following this Instagram account? And I think that there's, there's so much more that's going to happen in that area that makes me super excited. And obviously, if you look to China, as I know you guys have done, it's very clear that live shopping and, and micro-influencers and kind of, it's about allowing those curators to be able to monetize uh, their work in an efficient way, right? To create tools and services that allow them to, to highlight products and services through video, through blog posts, through pictures, through images, and then somehow participate in the value they create for the brands uh, by doing that. Timo Amu is an influential leader in a new guard of marketeers helping luxury tap into the massive social commerce opportunity. Selected for Forbes 30 Under 30, in 2021, Amu was named by the Evening Standard, a London paper, as one of the most influential people in marketing and advertising. He is the CEO of Fanbytes, which supports social media creators to navigate success while also guiding brands to reach younger audiences on emerging and existing platforms. Timo, why is the luxury industry's interest in social commerce growing so significantly, in your opinion? So I think social commerce, the key reason why it's become so important is because there's this big shift going on with especially the next generation of consumers, where what I like to describe as the phone is the remote control to their world. And so if you are a brand and you want to be able to reach this next generation of consumers, the way to do it is not to then bring them over to your website because fundamentally social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, 
Social media is now just the internet, right? There is no real differentiator. We consume all our stuff on social media and then very rarely we then actually go to a website to actually make the final transaction. And so there is this real impetus now for luxury brands who typically have a pretty high consideration rate for them to meet audiences where they spend their time, which is on social media. And so when you think about that combination of like the new generation are doing this and also social media has now by default become the internet, it's pretty obvious that this was the path that we're going to go, especially if you are a luxury brand in this market. The luxury industry is traditionally somewhat reticent to engage with new platforms and new forums Can you tell me about your experience now of how well the luxury industry is engaging with the opportunity? One of the most interesting things that I see in the fashion world is the first movers are always the more nimble, fast fashion brands. And that is the case for any new big media. So I remember about two, three, probably about three years ago when Facebook Lives were really a thing, the first brands who were doing it were all the fast fashion brands. And it's interesting because for so many of these luxury brands, the number one blocker is, does our brand fit into this, right? Because so many of these brands are predicated of uh, narrative, of heritage. And so it feels almost like they're losing some of their heritage if they start doing things which you know could potentially fail or could potentially not go the right way so what we saw at the beginning was that the key drivers or the key brands who were taking part in this new wave were the fast fashion brands and as with everything especially in this in this world of fashion luxury or just commerce money talks and so when it then became obvious that we were starting to see some quick wins right so the brands like the boohoo's of the world like the nasty girls of the world especially if we're looking at the makeup category as well when they started to show results from that it then became the first in it for the brands like the Burberry's and the Gucci's to start looking into it and then now it's starting to cascade down I think we are a very long way away from it being a mainstay for luxury brands because so many of them still want to you know hold on to like their heritage and the narrative that they've built So I think one of the biggest things we're seeing is actually brands perhaps being more accepting of the fact that they can't directly see the attribution from specific platforms. And if we're thinking about specific platforms, I'm thinking about things like Snapchat, for example. One of the incredible things about Snapchat, which I still think a lot of luxury brands haven't hopped on. There's been quite a few, but really the people who've hopped onto that has been the gaming market. And that is the use of AR and augmented reality Snapchat lenses. Because when you look at that stuff there, what you're seeing is incredible engagement and watch time. And brands are starting to realize that actually just that engagement and that watch time surely would have led 
to some kind of sales further down the line. So I think more brands are starting to just be a bit more open, actually, about the fact that the depth of engagement is increasingly becoming important. But then for those people who are trying to drive, you know, direct response or to drive a direct correlation, there still is that. But what we're starting to see, which I think is fascinating that we're talking about this in H2, is that becomes even more important in the key parts of the year. So you look at things like Christmas and Halloween or even Pride Month, like there are these key moments where performance becomes even more important and direct attribution becomes even more important, which is why then at those points, people are moving more towards social commerce. Because, for example, one of the things that I've seen brands do is, for example, during Christmas, they might host uh, Instagram live. They might partner up with an influencer to host an Instagram live. In there, you'd be able to click through on all the products that they're being talked about and directly purchase. So in those key periods, what we're seeing is performance is becoming even more important. But actually, just like on an ongoing basis, we are actually seeing more brands being content and actually realizing that for these platforms like Snapchat, where the depth of engagement is more important, like TikTok, where UGC and engagement and comments and watch time is more important. We're seeing that fine balance, which I think is really the way that a lot of people in other sectors, whether it's in gaming or in sports, for example, they all see that type of behavior as well. I want to quickly change tack now and start thinking about the Gen Z cohort more broadly. What do you advise your clients on how they should start thinking about engaging such a huge cohort where individual identity is such a huge part of that cohort's identity? Where do you start? What are the principles that you advise your clients to start with? So one thing that we always talk about, and I was on a panel recently, and I think the person perfectly encapsulated it, which is a lot of people see Gen Z as a demographic, but that's actually the wrong way to think about it. The way to think about them is actually as a psychographic, which is Gen Z is not, you know, you are now past 24 or 25, so therefore you can't be Gen Z. I think it's a way of thinking and it's a psychographic, which actually makes it easier for brands to be able to reach them. So that's the first thing that we think about here, about like, it's not just a demographic, but it's actually a psychographic of people. And the second thing that we think about, which is really a key point here, is there are so, so, so many mini communities within the Gen Z audience. And what is so important is because we've grown up with social media as the remote control to our world, we don't segment ourselves by our age group. We segment ourselves by our really niche interests. So what we see is, for example, you know, I and 10,000 other people with someone in Lebanon and in Bolivia and in Canada are all interested in this particular type of music or we're all interested in this particular type of show. And what's happening now and when we advise our brands, we say the best way to go is to really think about 
yeah, you say that you want to be Gen Z, but let's go a layer down. Let's go a sub layer. And what niches, what core niches are we actually trying to engage with in that particular demographic? Are we trying to engage the fashionista? Are we trying to engage the bargain hunter? Like who exactly are we trying to engage? And then the moment that you do that is actually quite simple, right? So the first thing is to understand that they are not demographic, they're psychographic. And then what are the sub communities? And then and once you've understood the sub communities in there, now is just really a case of starting to like communicate using the language and the, you know, the cultural references and the memes that they use. It's not particularly rocket science once you've been able to get to that level. And I think so many people complicate it because they see Gen Z as this like alien group of people who need to be understood. But really, the moment you understand their subcultures, then you can just introduce your brand in that in a very simple way. As Timo mentioned, the significance of content and content creators in the mobile-first, always-on, digitally-connected retail ecosystems of today and tomorrow is unquestionably growing. And, as is so often the case in retail innovation, China is already ahead of the Western curve. My last guest, Patrice Nordi, the founder and CEO of Faber Novel Asia, has lived in Shanghai for the last 14 years. I invited him to share his insights on the influencer economy in China, which has now seen influencer businesses listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. How critical are the key opinion leaders and key opinion consumers, which are the rough equivalents of the influencers and engaged consumer communities of the West? Their importance has been growing years after years up to now. So key opinion leaders, KOC, key opinion consumers also, as we call them, are essentially a content creator with an audience, right? And they correspond to a step of um, the evolution of the business model, of uh, shopping business model, where content is probably now the key element that convert consumer to buy. If we just take a few steps back into how you know commerce has evolved, uh, there's essentially three steps. So the key for a brand today is to develop a strong relationship with its key partners because they have the traffic. And the shopping um, equation is to be able to have enough media to bring to those platforms to deliver sales and uh, revenue. Now we enter in a new phase, which is more uh, real-time and content-driven commerce. So we see um, users uh, going more and more into a platform called like a like live stream platform or short video platform like Douyin or very social media-driven platform like uh, Red. And so the equation for brands is to be able to produce at scale and is real-time a lot of content to be associated with their product so they can convert the traffic on those platforms into sales. And brands don't have enough capability to deliver enough content. If we look at Douyin, for instance, like a, a normal brand should deliver hundreds of videos per month to be able to sustain you know, its presence and visibility into those platforms. So in this equation, so content creators and KOL, video streamers, are the missing link for brands or the key strategic partner for brands to convert their users into customers. 
maybe I can give you um, a landscape also into the type of KOLs because there is many types. There is not one single type of KOL. So we have different categories. Uh, and I think you mentioned a bit, so we have the key opinion leaders who usually are professional influencers. And usually when they reach a certain level, uh, they are not working alone. They are working with a team and they work mainly as an agency would work. So they, they, they will have a content producer that will take care of the video shooting, of the copywriting. Uh, they will have managers to help them work with the brands and to cooperate with the brands. So most of those KOLs who grew as a top KOL now have usually around 10 to 50 people around them. Uh, so they are really working as agencies. And in the recent years, we even saw um, KOL incubators emerging, uh, so-called MCN. This started with more grassroots KOLs and more um, focused into converting their audience into buyers, so a more sales-driven KOL. On Tabao, for instance, there's a lot of grassroots KOLs, and companies started to regroup these KOLs into um, huge cohorts of KOLs, so assembling hundreds and even sometimes thousands of KOLs under one roof to be able to propose to the market and to brands the capability to even go further into uh, deploying uh, content across uh, social networks and to convert through this content consumers or fans into buyers. So, so some of them actually have been listed <laughs> in the stock exchange because they, they reach a very, very huge valuation. And then you have a last category that we call the KOCs. So C stands for consumers. Those persons are actually real consumers who are really not professional. Usually they have uh, much less fans, so a few hundreds or a few thousand, but not much. But when we look at statistics, even though those type of uh, influencer will less value in terms of the brand equity uh, when they speak about a brand because they have less authority. But their power to convert into sales is several times higher than any type of KOL. So again, and as with the same actually uh, idea of assembling several KOL into MCN, we also have now companies that assemble KOCs into private pools of consumers to directly connect with them and propose their, uh, their product or their services. And it's something that we call product traffic, which is a way to directly interact uh, on a real time. Usually these consumers are into WeChat groups and sometimes hundreds of WeChat groups and managed by um, operators that work on behalf of the brand to engage with them on a real-time basis and to propose services and products uh, and usually uh, special offers as well uh, so they can uh, drive uh, sales. One of the best illustrations of that or the most common illustration of that is maybe um, a Chinese brand that you have, may have heard about. It's a beauty brand called Perfect Diary. And this company bring that uh, technique of um, private traffic to the highest sophistication level, I guess. One of the best illustrations of that, or the most common illustration of that, is maybe a, a Chinese brand that you have, may have heard about. Uh, it's a beauty brand um, uh, called Perfect Diary. Um, 
and this company bring that uh, technique of private traffic to the highest sophistication level, I guess, um, because they have now some 5 million customers um, into their private pools, mainly into WeChat. Um, and they have assembled a team of 200 people who interact on a real-time base with them um, to sell their services. Uh, so they have intimate, real-time, uh, very personalized interaction with their consumers. They don't need to go through platforms. Uh, so they, they don't need to go through Taobao or Jindong or other marketplace. So they don't need to reacquire or to pay a commission if they want to interact with their customers. Um, and so new type uh, of um, doing e-commerce through private pools uh, and for and for users to also uh, connect with a brand and, and shop with a brand uh, because they are served like like private customers uh, with a very personal uh, relationship. Why is consumer behavior in China capable of driving such rapid change operationally? So, so China is turning very fast, um, and luxury is not an exception, or the way to consume luxury. Um, one of the key drivers uh, probably is also um, the fact that there's a very large proportion of uh, millennial consumers. You know, there are around 400 million uh, in China. So it's, it's a very strong consumer force uh, to address. And the millennials are uh, not only... Um, hyper-connected, so they are even more connected than the average. Uh, so they usually have several phones, and they are even more uh, transacting online than the average population. But also they are trendsetters, and they are not afraid to try new things. So so I think this is one of the very key strong drivers for change or innovation in general. That's it for episode four. Next week, in the penultimate episode of the series, we're entering the metaverse from stores that guide you from the street to the dress you previously browsed on Instagram, to luxury items designed exclusively for the smart glasses every major tech platform is now working on. As we're about to discover, the future of luxury is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. But what role does an industry traditionally based on craftsmanship, natural resources, and until now, tactility, have in an increasingly digitized world? Can luxury maintain its relevance in the metaverse? To answer that question, we meet creative technologist Omiyaki, the technical designer of Gucci's virtual trainers, and the co-founders and creative directors behind Ouroboros, the first digital collection shown in London Fashion Week's Discovery Lab, which saw over 2 million people digitally interact with their Venus trap dress. Please do make sure you're following Transforming Luxury wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll be guaranteed to get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And don't forget to review this podcast and share your thoughts with us. A huge thank you to Timo, Jerry, Iris, and Patrice, and of course, our partners, Klarna. I'm Robin Mallory-Pratt, and that was Transforming Luxury. Thanks for listening.